Hi, and welcome to episode two of the Hansel and Gretel Code. Well, today's the day we start digging into the story and we're really gonna get our hands dirty. So get ready for this, because in getting to the bottom of this fairy tale, we're gonna find ourselves uncovering some long buried skeletons. And as we bring them up into the light, they just might start coming back to life. As I've said, there are only 42 sentences in the manuscript version we'll be using, and each one of them is jam-packed with clues, so we're going to have to sift through them pretty carefully, one at a time. This being a cold case, we don't want to miss anything that all the other investigators have. That said, before we even get to the first sentence, we can already see there's an odd little discrepancy in the matter of the title. And what I mean is, the first and most obvious clue we have to examine is that Hansel and Gretel wasn't even the original name of the story. Our manuscript version was called Das Bruderchen und das Schwesterchen, The Little Brother and the Little Sister. It was the Grimms themselves who chose to give the story its famous name. And so right off the bat, we have this seemingly insignificant little detail we could probably get away with ignoring. I mean, is this really a clue? Or are we just making work for ourselves by bringing it up? Plenty of other investigators have already mentioned it and pretty much left it at that. Of course, it seems only logical that the Grimms would change the name because they had another little brother and little sister story they also wanted to publish, and they did. Obviously, they couldn't use the same title for both stories, so they made a simple editorial decision. There's probably nothing more to it than that. Getting bogged down in thinking through every teensy-tiny detail like this, especially when we've already got a perfectly adequate and logical explanation for it, well, it sounds kind of silly, if not something worse. And hey, you know, it might even be the factual truth. So why don't we just leave it at that and keep moving? Beating around the bush here is probably a complete waste of our valuable time and attention. Not to mention a very boring exercise in futility. Except, it's not. And here's why. Perfectly logical interpretations of this story, not to mention some highly sophisticated academic investigations, have all missed the boat on just about every fascinating discovery that we're going to make. And this is no exception. The key is to be suspicious of perfectly logical explanations that just have no juice, no excitement in them. Ho-hum, reasonable explanations that don't make us all sit up and go, Whoa! Well, they might help us to get through this fairy tale in just a few episodes. What they would give us, though, is just another wooden cliché of an interpretation. And for my money, interpretations like that are real snoozers. More importantly... 
details that have perfectly logical explanations are almost a dead giveaway that something sly, sneaky, and entertaining as hell is hiding in them. And this little brother and little sister detail is no exception. We're actually going to find out that there is an important clue hiding in the original name of the story. I just can't say anything more about it right now, and that's not because I want to keep you hanging. It's because there's no way any of us could possibly pull the meaning of that clue out of thin air, or anywhere else. Not now, and maybe not ever. And what I mean is, not without a whole lot of context. You and I need to know so much more about the story before we'd be able to see this deft little clue as one of the missing jewels in it. Because that's exactly what it is. You see, there was a time and a place when that bare-bones, generic-sounding title, Little Brother and Little Sister, well, that would have made more than just a few people smile and nod and rub their hands together, knowing exactly where this story was coming from and where it was likely headed. And that's because they were living within a culture that provided all the context they needed to catch the drift of that title. We, of course, no longer live in that zeitgeist. So the kinds of things we're all familiar with, the kind of info we need to get us through our usual days, the kind of entertainment we seek to get us through our evenings and nights, not to mention all the attention grabbers and distractions we can no longer escape, well, that's all stuff that forces us to keep missing the boat on Hansel and Gretel. So let me give you just a little snapshot of those people and that zeitgeist. See, the people who cared about this story and who first understood its meaning were professionals. They just weren't the typical fairy tale professionals native to our zeitgeist. The professionals we have now are academic folklorists, psychiatrists, and various postmodern cultural critics. No, back then, they were theologians, philosophers, and artists. Just about all of them were writers, many of them were teachers, and some were very, very involved in the discipline of philology. Hey, it really was a different zeitgeist. And a very dangerous one, too. It was just after the French Revolution, a pivotal, free-for-all moment in European history when everything went topsy-turvy. In a kind of intellectual reign of terror, it wasn't just the guillotined heads of aristocrats that were being held up for view. Everything that had been held up as truth for as long as anyone could remember was being examined and overturned. Dickens used a litany of paradoxical opposites to describe that zeitgeist, famously calling it the best of times and worst of times. One of the most important things to understand about that zeitgeist, especially as it relates to our fairy tale, is that what interested and entertained so many people was the activity of reading and discussing ideas and information. And we're not just talking about fiction and newspapers. No, people were actually entertained by reading philosophy and poetry. Just to give you an idea of how far removed we are from such a zeitgeist, consider this brief snippet from a long fan letter sent to Immanuel Kant on October 2, 1796, just 14 years before the Grimms wrote down our story. And I quote in English, 
You cannot believe how enthusiastically young ladies and women are taken with your system and how eager they all are to learn about it. There are many women's groups here in Würzburg where each one is eager to outdo the others in showing knowledge of your system. It is the favorite topic of conversation. Well, just let that sink in for a moment. Well, I guarantee we're going to get an even more intimate and entertaining view of the context that gave those earlier fairy tale lovers plenty of reasons to smile. And before we're through, the very mention of little brother and little sister is going to put a knowing smile on our faces, too. And here's a real flash. You know, I've been working on this material for over 10 years. And in all that time, it never fully registered with me that the names Hansel and Gretel do not appear anywhere in the manuscript. Such is the power of our zeitgeist to blind us to the simplest of observations. So here's the very first line of the manuscript in English. Once upon a time, there was a poor woodcutter who lived before a great forest. Now, just like the title, you might be thinking, there's nothing of any great consequence here. It's all pretty straightforward and factual, kind of like an episode of Dragnet. Just the facts, ma'am. Well, with fairy tales and dreams, all the magic and meaning lies hidden between the lines. In all the tiny details, meaning the nooks and crannies of those seemingly innocent and straightforward facts. And this first line already has at least three of them. First, we've got a woodcutter living near a great big forest. Second, we've been told that our woodcutter is poor. And third, before we can even set foot in that fairy tale forest to start hunting for witches and interpretive Easter eggs, there's the easily overlooked detail of that universal phrase, once upon a time. So now, why am I stopping to examine once upon a time? It's certainly not specific to Hansel and Gretel. It's just a simple cliche, isn't it? Or maybe a basic literary convention. What more can anybody say about once upon a time. All right, sure. Makes you wonder sometimes, especially about that phrasing. So even if it sounds oddly quaint, like old Lang Syne, we all know what it means, right? It just references some mythical or imaginary time in the past. We really don't need any more complicated an explanation than that, do we? Instead of a red-hot clue into Hansel and Gretel, it's probably just a red herring that'll only get us lost and off the trail. Well, before we dismiss it as a convention or a cliché, or even a red herring, how about we just try giving it a precise definition and see where that takes us? So, to be nitpicky, it qualifies as an idiom. And an idiom is any phrase where you can't deduce its full meaning from the dictionary meanings of the individual words. What I'm saying is, we all know what once means, and we all know what upon means, and of course we all know what time means. Put them all together, it gives us this phrase that we've all heard, and we know exactly when to use. And that makes it just like a handy phrase in a foreign language. In fact, a foreign idiom is something you've learned how to say and you know when to use. That is, 
You know when it fits in a certain situation, and you can use it with confidence, even though the literal translation is either really weird or it just makes no sense at all in your own language. Using it, though, is something that not only makes you sound more like a native, it can actually make you less of a complete foreigner. So that's what once upon a time is, a foreign idiom, period. End of story, even though it only fits at the beginning of them. Okay, well, that still only tells us what once upon a time is, not what it means. And that puts us right back where we started. So are we just chasing our own tails here? Well, in a very particular way, yes. Because that's exactly what the phrase requires of us. So let me explain. We all now know that once upon a time is just an idiom, and it references some mythical or, okay, maybe even some historical past. And that's plenty of meaning to hang our logical hats on. Except it still leaves us hanging. As a traditional fairy tale mantra, once upon a time always tickles something in us that goes beyond words, something that logic and reason can never quite reach. Kind of like those pesky little hairs that sneak up under your collar at the barber shop. Logically, we all know that fairy tales have the power to stir our imagination. Except we're not imagining things when we sense that something important is hiding in that tantalizing little phrase. Something we really need to know. And yet, like a Zen koan, once upon a time confounds our logic. In fact, it might as well be a magic spell conjured up by some witch or wizard because it makes us feel something that we know in our bones but renders us powerless to explain what that could be, even to ourselves. And it's not just the phrase, it's what comes after the phrase. There's a feeling that once upon a time is almost standing guard over something and that something, whatever it is, is locked away. Not only in the fairy tale, it's in us, too. So maybe we've all become immune to the power of that spell, and we should just brush right by once upon a time, just push it out of the way. After all, if this was once a dragon guarding the castle of truth, we're all far too sophisticated to pay any attention to its toothless demand that we learn its language and that of the fairy tale it's guarding. Hey, we're all adults here. We all know how to read a fairy tale. Our logical mind has no trouble understanding the words, and we all get the picture. Well, maybe we get the picture. We just don't get the truth. Not if logic is the only language we understand. If we enter fairy tales armed only with logic, we will, like so many clueless knights trying to slay the dragon, end up with nothing but boring cliches for our pains. The deep truths that once upon a time stands guard over, are written in a language that only our intuition and emotions can understand. And one of the deepest secrets of Hansel and Gretel is that unless we learn to value our intuition and emotions and come to understand their language, truth itself will always elude us, and not only in fairy tales. See, Hansel and Gretel is a story that's all about truth, Maybe even the most important truth in life, the universe, and everything. 
What it's not, though, is a story about telling the truth, since there are nine outright lies or fibs told in the course of it. Everybody in Hansel and Gretel lies at some point or another. And that fact alone ought to be enough to convince you that the characters in it are all utterly true to life. Just know that facts alone don't constitute truth. Truth be told, I myself have already lied to you. About the facts, that is. Because the father, unlike everyone else in the story, doesn't actually tell a lie. Not directly. This guy's weak capitulation to his wife's carping demands to get rid of the kids a key point on which the entire story depends? Well, that constitutes something far worse than any of the blatant lies told by the other characters. In thinking, or somehow believing, that he could live happily ever after, after abandoning his two children in the forest, he becomes the only character ultimately caught lying to himself. Ouch. Now, for what it's worth, it turns out that lie doesn't do him any great harm. And without all the lying, there wouldn't be any story at all. So why would we want the truth in any story, especially if the best part of it is all a tissue of lies and fictional, imaginary ones at that? Because that's where all the magic is, in a lie. In a lie that tells the truth. And what I'm talking about here is metaphor. And what is metaphor? But a cheeky little rhetorical trope that says A is B, or C, or maybe even X and Y. Meaning, it takes two obviously and sometimes wildly dissimilar somethings and insists that they are not just alike, but the very same thing. And it does that all with a straight face. See, metaphor is the paradox that confounds logic and that witches abhor. And it's the very language that fairy tales speak. It's also the language that truth speaks. So now, once upon a time, as far einmal in German or olim in Latin, it may be a toothless old dragon to the logical mind, it still stands as a ritual signal to consciousness, informing, if not warning us, that not only is our logical, empirical mind going to be a clueless tourist in the land of fairy tales, it's definitely not going to understand the language. So if we want to find all the jewels in Hansel and Gretel, our intuitive and emotional consciousness is going to have to take over and do the interpreting. Otherwise, we're just going to get ripped off and have a typically bland, homogenized tourist experience where we never leave our filter bubble or taste or see any of the really mind-blowing, juicy stuff that only the locals know about. So if you're looking for a tour of just the highlights of Hansel and Gretel, you're probably on the wrong bus. Sure, we're going to see all of its famous landmarks. We're also going to go way off the beaten path to explore its dark, metaphoric underbelly. And Once Upon a Time is the gateway to that scary but vibrant place. In fact, it's an unassuming-looking threshold that has a very serious meaning and a very specific name in psychology. It's what's known as a liminal space, a psychological state where we find ourselves betwixt and between, neither in nor out. 
Now, we always had the option of passing right through it without thinking and entering the fairy tale forest with our logical caps on, which means letting logic lead us around by the nose and take us to all the usual tourist traps. Or we can stop for a moment and acknowledge the power it represents by taking those hats off and giving our intuition carte blanche to take us to the wild and funky source of all those intriguing foreign aromas, the honest-to-God truth. So I promised to explain why we were chasing our own tails. The image comes from alchemy, and it's known as the Ouroboros, the snake biting its own tail. And for our purposes, it's even sometimes pictured as a dragon biting its own tail. It's a metaphoric image of such great depth that it can never be fully explained to the logical mind. And that's the point. Just like a Zen koan, it's meant to take logic for a ride, around and around until it gets tired and bored and dizzy and finally gets off the bus, leaving our intuition in charge. Another thing it does is cast a circle, just as witches and wizards always did and do. And that's where the truth lies, within a circle that logic can't penetrate, but can only distort. So consider Once Upon a Time as a magic spell that casts a circle around the truth in order to protect it from an intrusion of logic. And if we dare to cross the line and enter into the great Hansel and Gretel forest, we have to understand we're being commanded to remove our logical hats, just as Moses was commanded to remove his sandals because he was about to tread on holy ground. Wild, huh? Well, now that we're in the right frame of mind and properly prepared, we're ready for our next episode when we're finally going to step foot in our woodcutter's great forest, and where we'll almost immediately find ourselves transported to somewhere around the year 98 Common Era? I hope you decide to join us. And for sure, bring a friend or two or three. Just remember that the website for this podcast is betweenthelines.xyz. Pay a visit and you'll find transcripts, links, and a few more fairy tale articles, as well as links to my other intuitive work at Christo.art and Christo.com. I hope to see you there. Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti.